we receive our scripture reading, the word of the Lord that comes from Isaiah chapter 12. This is his word for us. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. And today we have a special guest, uh, guest speaker who will be preaching for us today. His name is Dr. Reverend Victor Naka. Uh, he is the International Director for Sub-Saharan Africa with MTW, which stands for Missions to the World, which is actually the official missions organization for our denomination, PCA. So let us welcome him with a round of applause as he comes up to preach God's word for us. A very good morning to you all. And uh, thank you to the pastor and the leadership for the privilege to share from God's word this morning. Uh, thank you for the special welcome. Uh, it has been wonderful to spend time uh, in this church this week. Um, and thank you for your, for your ministry. Uh, thank you for your ministry, uh, not just to this city, but to the world. Uh, like you heard, my name is Victor. And I'm married to uh, Nossizo. We've been married for 35 years. Uh, and we have two daughters uh, and two grandchildren. Uh, two boys who we love deeply. And, and so this morning I'm uh, speaking from Isaiah uh, chapter 12. I'll go into chapter 11 a little bit um, as I try to develop the theme uh, for this morning. And so as we read the book of Isaiah, we can divide the book into three major sections. Uh, think of a sandwich, right? You have two pieces of bread, uh, and in the middle, you have the meaty part uh, of the sandwich. And so section one, uh, a bad, faithless king. Uh, and we read a lot about King Ahaz. Uh, and that's the first section. Uh, and the uh, third section uh, the good king, King Hezekiah. Uh, and then in the middle, which is the, the longest section, uh, and that section serves to, to affirm to us the absolute control of God over his world. Uh, and a lot is said in between there to encourage us, to motivate us, to inspire us. And then chapters 11 and 12 mark the end of the first section of Isaiah's magnificent book. And these, in these concluding chapters, the, the issue that Isaiah wants us to consider is whether seeing is believing. Is what we see the whole story or is God working out his plans out of sight? Is what we see all there is to it 
or in fact God is working out his plans out of sight. And naturally, we, we put a lot of confidence in what we see. Uh, we, we trust our eyes and we trust our ears and we put a lot of confidence in what we see. And, and yet what we see doesn't always tell us the whole story. Uh, a word of warning is that what we see is not always what is true. Seeing is not believing. It doesn't always tell the whole story. There's more to it than what meets the eye. Especially for us as the people of faith, as the people of God, those who believe in God who is working out his purposes in the world. There are times in everyday life when the reverse is true. Believing is the only way to see. And what we believe determines how we look at things, how we look at the world, how we look at economics and politics. It's the basis of the Christian worldview. And this sort of thinking takes us right into the heart of this section of Isaiah. All through these chapters, Isaiah keeps confronting his hearers with the key decision of their lives. Are you going to rely on Assyria, the king of Assyria and all that he has, or you're going to rely on God? Are you going to be faithful or you're going to be faithless? Are you going to live by sight or you're going to live by faith? Are you going to trust King Ahaz and his plans as he forges an alliance with Assyria to save us against our enemies? Or are you going to trust God and his promises? And the prophet is saying to the people and to us this morning, you can believe the promises of God even when what is predicted seems impossible. Even when it makes no sense. Even when it defies logic. When it defies what you see and what is possible. The people of God are given a choice. And the choice is between the promises of God and our plans. Plans for ourselves. Who will you trust to serve? Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself and your plans? And as we read in chapter 7 of Isaiah, King Ahaz chose to go with Assyria and we all know what happened. Assyria swallowed him. It was a total disaster. What he put his trust in consumed him and his people. The, the medicine that he chose to save himself and his people poisoned them. And so King Ahaz learned it the hard way. He learned that what you see is not always what you get. And this is the reason why it's always foolishness for us to live by sight and not by faith. Why? Because sight cannot see what God is doing in every situation. Sight cannot see what God is doing behind the scenes. 
Sight cannot see what God is doing when we are fast asleep. But it's also true for Assyria, isn't it? That what you see is not always what you get. As we read Isaiah, we know that they conquered large parts, large sections of Judah. And then when they came to the very edge of Jerusalem, we read they experienced massive defeat. And 2 Kings 19 tells us that God delivered them from the Assyrians by a miraculous action in which more than 100,000 of their troops were destroyed. And so even Assyria, they discovered that the conquest of Jerusalem was one city too far because Jerusalem was an instrument in the hands of God. Jerusalem was a rod in the hand of the almighty God. And so when we come to the end of chapter 10 of Isaiah, it is a timely reminder that God is in control, that he is the, he is the hidden factor and the nations melt like snow when the Lord decrees his will. And this brings us to chapter 11. And the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, you can sum them up as you don't always get what you see where the plans of men are concerned. Ahaz thought that Assyria would bring protection to his throne and to his people. And he was wrong. Assyria thought they would be able to take Jerusalem, but God stopped them. And in this final section, we get a striking contrast between the plans of men that fail and the promises of God that succeed. It's the difference between night and day. And we can sum up the contrast this way. You don't always get what you see where the plans of men are concerned, whereas you get what you do not see where the promises of God are concerned. And we notice first in chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, the, the provision of the perfect ruler. And what is exciting about living by faith and God's word is that the X factor is always at work. God has, of course, spoken his promises, but we never know how he will bring them to effect. God leaves us guessing. Why? Because we can only see one day at a time, one step at a time, a few meters at a time. He's always surprising our little faith. God's outworking of his purposes are always full of surprises. And that is the point of the dramatic contrast between the end of chapter 10, where we read, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax. And once it's cut down, it's gone, it's dead. And then you read verse 1 of chapter 11, one solitary tree stump, which looks as if it is dead and finished. And yet... It is alive. And this trump, tree trump, is symbolic of the house of David, of the kingly rule of Judah, because Jesse is the stump, and he was David's father. Ahaz has been such a failure, and even the best of kings fell so short of God's standards. 
it looks as though God's promises about the kings of Judah and the line of David were just like a dead tree stump. But we get something that we do not see right here in verse 1. And what do we see? A king that will fulfill everything that the world has been looking for. A king that will fulfill all that human beings really need. And so verses 2 to 5 is like a resume. It's not that the Lord Jesus here is applying for the role of Messiah. But let's imagine he was applying. And these verses would be his resume. And if we were to be on the interview panel, this resume would be circulated amongst us. And coming out of that resume, we would ask him questions. And as we look at these verses, it's clear that this is no human king. This is no human king. The spirit of the Lord rests on him in verse 2. He is a candidate for king that the whole world has been waiting for. His resume is just too good to be true. The spirit of the Lord rests on him. He is perfect in his judgment. And unlike King Haas, who continually got it wrong because he judged by sight and by short-term policies, this king, this Jesus is different. He doesn't have to judge, verse 3, by what he sees with his eyes or decide from what he hears with his ears. Why? Because he has perfect wisdom. He has perfect understanding. This king, in verse 4, will rule with absolute fairness and justice, with a heart for the poor and the needy. And under his leadership, people will flourish and thrive. And unlike King Ahaz, who simply used his power to feather his own nest, this king is a true shepherd. This is a judge who won't rush to superficial conclusions. With this king, there is one rule for everyone. Not one for the rich and another for the poor. Not one for the privileged and another for those who are close to the king. This king is not going to be swayed by influence or title or prestige. And for this king, the ground is always level. On the last day, no one is going to turn around to Jesus and say, you're being so unfair. I'm being misunderstood because the, the judge is not listening to me. This is no ordinary man. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And it was no ordinary day when the angels heralded his birth in Bethlehem and say to the shepherds, unto you is born this day a savior. He is the Messiah, the anointed king, the Lord. And what they had not seen was that the word of the father was now in flesh appearing. And what we get is what we could not see. And as we look back from the promise to the birth of Jesus, 
to the growth of the church, his kingdom through the church. You notice that this is not your usual performance review. It's an outstanding appraisal of Jesus, like one we have never seen before. And like someone likes saying, the likes of which we have never seen before. Even more so when we look at his projected results. Look at verses 6 to 9. He is on target. He smashes records. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young gods. And that's an experience beyond anything we have encountered to date. We're being pushed even further forward beyond the earthly life, beyond the death of Jesus. We're being cast forward to the type of kingdom that this king will build. We're being given a figurative picture of safety and security and peace and community. And verse 8 is a fascinating verse. You, you almost tempted to instinctively try to intervene. The infant is playing at the hall of the cobra. And the young child puts a hand on the cobra's den. And you want to quickly pull the child away. What's going on here? Well, nothing is going to happen. Because no harm or destruction will come to anybody on the holy mountain of King Jesus. In the new creation, there will be no more death or disease, no more grave sites, no more goodbyes, no more tears. We won't be judged by the color of our skin or the way we dress or the way we speak or the way we look. No more disease, no more depression, no more darkness. And I think it's easy as you sit here this morning, to feel like, well, this, this, this world, this picture, it's far-fetched for me. It's too good to be true. You may be asking, give us something to help us really believe this, to believe this promise made all those years ago that this will come true. Well, there is no greater reason for why we can believe than what we have already seen come to fruition. The promised king in flesh revealed. The incarnation. The glory of the one and only one who came from the father full of grace and truth. That's why the Advent season is so special. It's precious. Why? Because during Advent we anticipate his coming again. Why? Because we have already seen him. We anticipate a new world order because we have already seen and tested the first fruits of that world in a church community that demonstrates kindness and grace and mercy. We've seen and tested the first fruits when we witness the life of a friend totally transformed by the power of the gospel. And they become the child of God. So these verses carry 
they carry us to the end of the beginning, to the beginning of eternity, to the new creation, to the new heavens and the new earth. We're given a glimpse of the home of righteousness where God will dwell among his people, where the whole creation is alive with the realization that God has kept and fulfilled his promises. We're presented here with the promised ruler and what a king he is, uniquely qualified, impeccable, presiding over a perfect world, a job well done. And it's because he's so glorious that God's people spend chapter 12 praising, praising the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And these chapters tell us, as far as God is concerned, we get what we do not see. And dare I say, we get what we do not deserve. We first get the perfect ruler, and we also get his promised return. Chapter 11, verse 10 is the key verse in this chapter. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This section divides into four unequal parts, each beginning with the same phrase, in that day. You see it here in verse 10, in verse 11, verse 12, and even verse 4. And so those four starting instructions, they state the time of the events in the future. Verse 10 is a wonderful, wonderful summary of God's great plan. And it centers on the root of Jesse. It centers on the promises made in verses 1 to 9. It centers on his return. It centers on King Jesus, who stands as a banner for his people. A banner that is raised high up. And the banner is the rallying place, the center of command and authority. And if you put up a banner in a battle, that's the point your army rallies to. That's where the center of command is. So what God is going to do on the last day is he is going to send his son back. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all people and nations will rally to him and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus, only Jesus, is Lord. And then they will enter into perfect rest for eternity with him. It's a future promise, but there's a sense that this is being fulfilled already in the already, but not yet. Right now, people are hearing the gospel all over the world. For us in Africa, large numbers of people coming to Christ. People are responding in faith. All over the world, the gospel is producing fruit. And daily, new believers are finding rest in Christ. Rest from a guilty conscience. Rest from our attempts to make our works acceptable to God. Rest from a world that is over-worried and overworked. And whatever rests we, we know, this side of eternity, whatever our experience is, well, we haven't seen anything like what is coming 
we haven't seen anything like what God has for us. You see, in the not yet, we will see the full experience of that relationship without sin. United together as God's people in perfect harmony around God's throne as a kingdom forever. Enjoying perfect peace and rest. On that day, when God sends his son back, verses 11 to 16, when Jesus gathers the nations, it will be like a second exodus. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Shina, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. And that is from all the known world at that time. And verse 12, he will gather people from the four corners of the earth. Verse 16, he will build a highway that will see them home. Isaiah says, do you remember when God delivered his people from Egypt? When he stretched his hand to rescue them a second time? I think it's a stunning verse of future hope. One day in the future, God says, I will restore broken relationships for good. It's a promise of a fresh start for people like you and me. People who have walked out of God. People who don't deserve his goodness and grace. And on the basis of this, no matter how far you are from God, no matter how far you are or you have wandered, no matter how badly you have treated him, no matter how persistently you have rejected him, God says, I will take you back. You cannot outsin the grace of God. Isn't that powerful? You cannot outsin the grace of God. And we see here the, 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 rest, the initiative of God in bringing restoration to us. God initiates restoration. It is him whose arms are wide open and he's waiting for you to run into them. And here in chapter 11, we're given a wonderful picture of how God will do that. The, the question Isaiah has been asking is, where will we find a faithful king? You notice as you read Isaiah, all these kings are just totally useless. Even those who started well, they end badly. Even King Hezekiah himself. And the question is, where will we find a faithful king? And Isaiah says, right here. We have seen Isaiah speak of the perfect ruler, of the promised return. And the point in these verses is that we should marvel at King Jesus. And there's no surprise that God's people spend chapter 12 doing just that. In praise of him with proper response. Well, life can be dis disappointing. People make promises that they cannot deliver. But our God is different. What he promises, he delivers. This is why this section concludes with two worship songs. 
And the first song in chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, it's a personal song. It is written in the first person. In that day I will praise you, O Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you have comforted me. This is a song for anybody who loves and trusts Jesus. And in glory, we will sing this song together. In verse 2, surely the Lord is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Wonderful words. We praise and enjoy God personally in verse 1 and 2. If we draw joy from the wells of salvation in verse 3, then verses 4 and 6, we find ourselves encouraging one another both to praise him and to proclaim his name among the nations. Verse 4, in that day, we will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make him known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let it be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. In life, some news is so great you cannot help but share it. And here God's people are full of joy and delight in the salvation that they have received. So even as we read these verses, years after they were composed, we see ourselves not as spectators of an ancient drama, but as participants in the salvation story. And here's the question for us this morning. Will you be on the narrow highway that leads to life? Or will you be on the Broadway that leads to destruction? Will you put your trust in your own plans? And the future that you think you can see? The future that you think you can concord for yourself? Or will you trust God's promises? Will you believe in what you cannot see? Will you put your trust in a promise that is far more sure, far more certain, far more guaranteed than anything we can see? Why? Because it is rooted in a promise already fulfilled. In the birth of the perfect ruler, in the death of the suffering servant, in the resurrection of the risen redeemer, in the ascension of the victorious king. Rooted in a promise already fulfilled. I was saying in closing, talk about prayer guaranteed, prayer answered. Imagine my daughter just before Christmas uh, gets excited about a bicycle, a pink bicycle. And so she runs, well, before she does that, uh, she's watching some program and she wants this pink bicycle. And she's saying to herself, I'm going to ask mom and dad to buy it for me. Meanwhile, unbeknown to her, in the bedroom with my wife, 
we're talking about, well, what if we get our daughter a bicycle? And we look at each other and say, it's done. And a minute later, our daughter runs into her bedroom. Daddy, daddy, please. That's what she used to do. <laughs> please, can you buy me a bicycle? I want a pink one. And we'll look at each other with my wife and say, wow, this is prayer answered. Why? Because she has asked according to our will, isn't it? She has asked for what we wanted for her anyway. Well, this is what Isaiah is saying. Rooted in a promise already fulfilled. In the birth of the perfect ruler. In the death of the suffering servant. In the resurrection of the risen redeemer. In the ascension of the victorious king. A promise fulfilled that guarantees a bright future for tomorrow. And a great hope for today. May God help us. As the worship team comes up, let me pray for us. Lord, how we pray that you excite us, excite us with your promises and your plans. That Lord, these promises and these plans would not be burdensome to us, but a joy because we know they're guaranteed. We pray for anyone this morning who doesn't know this Jesus, that Lord, you who draw them to yourself, for that is the reason why you died and rose again. And we ask this in Jesus' name.